This is Publishers Weekly Radio, the authority on all things books and publishing, with everything you need to know from your favorite books and the world in which they live to bestseller lists and publishing news. Here's the inside story on your favorite story. Publishers Weekly Radio, with your hosts, Rose Fox and Mark Rotella. Hello and welcome to Publishers Weekly Radio on the web at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio and streaming free on iHeartRadio, iTunes, and audiobookradio.net. I'm Rose Fox and I'm a Senior Reviews Editor at Publishers Weekly. And I'm Mark Rotella, Senior Editor at Publishers Weekly. We're bringing you the very best of book talk directly from PW's offices in New York City, the heart of the book publishing world. On today's show, author Joseph Gibelli discusses his new book, In Pursuit of Memory, The Fight Against Alzheimer's. Then PW Editorial Director Jim Milliot previews PW's annual publishing industry salary survey. But first, here's a sneak peek at next week's Publishers Weekly Bestseller list powered by NPD BookScan. Well, we've got a new number one over here on the hardcover fiction list, finally pushing Dan Brown out of the top spot. And uh, very few people could do that. And this one is John Grisham. Mm -hmm. No surprise that that's up there. Uh, Again, first week sales in the sextuple digits. Uh, We have 114,000 copies sold, according to BookScan. Uh, And that's just, again, of the print hardcover. So I'm sure many, many more. In, yeah. in digital. And uh, this is the Rooster Bar. Uh, we say in our review that it's an insightful, if flawed, novel, actually inspired by an Atlantic article that highlights the disturbing world of for-profit legal education. It looks at uh, three friends who are third-year law students who are deep in debt, uh, and then another friend of theirs commits suicide before he can reveal the conspiracy that he's found, uh, which is that their law school admits unqualified students in order to profit from their student loans, and the school's owner owns a bank that specializes in student lending. Wow. So, major scam going on there. Uh, we say in our review that uh, after they make a series of missteps – their disgruntled clients and creditors start to close in, but they still manage to uh, finish what their collaborator and friend started. Uh, so the two of the characters feel like the same person at times. What drives their choices isn't always clear. And that the intriguing story has some suspenseful moments, but thinly constructed characters kind of dilute the impact. Yeah. Uh, still, John Grisham is a name that will sell book after book after book. So number one with a bullet. Number eight of Quick and Dirty by Stuart Woods. Uh, this is the 43rd novel in the Stone Barrington thriller series, a uh, real long running masterpiece at this point. And uh, we say that it's still quite suspenseful. Woods knows what he's doing. It starts with the theft of a small unknown Van Gogh painting from a Park Avenue penthouse. Uh, we say that uh, the excitement builds as a deadline approaches, though the surprise twist ending raises more questions than it answers. Mm. And uh, just below that at number nine, Strange Weather, four short novels by Joe Hill, uh, whose full name is Joe Hillman King, Stephen King's son, and uh, a really outstanding writer in his own right. Uh, And we say that he delivers on the strange in this collection of four novels, which stretch from horror to magical realism to straight up thriller. 
uh, we say uh, that this collection may not be as horrific as his early 20th century ghosts, which is an incredible book, incidentally, mm. but its ideas have powerful emotional and political resonance. And that's what we've got on the hardcover fiction list. Not uh, a lot happening. No, well, we've got a little bit more happening in nonfiction. We do have a new number one. This is a cookbook, The Pioneer Woman Cooks. And this is the, the latest in the Pioneer Woman Empire. Uh, subtitle, Come and Get It, Simple Scrumptious Recipes for Crazy Busy Lives. So whenever Reed Drummond has a cookbook coming out, it shoots right to the top. This one came in at just over 100,000. That is unheard of. That's amazing, that is, I, especially for, for, for a cookbook. cookbook yeah. That's unbelievable. Yeah. And I think the print run, the original print run, and I could be under uh, undershooting it right here, was about 300,000, maybe. Well, they're maybe not going to have any so. trouble there. No, exactly. The next one is a starred review uh, Sisters First Stories from Our Wild and Wonderful Life. This is by Jenna Bush Hager and Barbara Pierce Bush, two sisters and daughters of President George W. Bush and First Lady Laura Bush. Um, it's just a really sweet, funny, heartfelt memoir uh, of alternating chapters between the two sisters. And we say we say in our review, they have sober reflections on, on the war in Iraq, uh, the 9-11 terrorists, and the tough, sometimes unpopular decisions the author's father made while in office. We say readers will be entertained by this charming, wild, and wonderful pair of life stories. And uh, so it's nice to see them up there on the top of the charts. Now, on number five, we have another cookbook. Uh, another starred review, Smitten Kitchen Every Day, Triumphant and Unfussy New Favorites by Deb Perlman. Deb Perlman started as a blogger for the Smitten Kitchen, uh, and, and the first book was a Smitten Kitchen cookbook. And we say here she had to modify her approach to mealtime to accommodate a young, hungry family. Before it was single cooking, now with families. Uh, we say Perlman's latest is packed with tempting, well-written recipes that promise delicious meals for the whole family. At number nine, we have a diehard Christmas, the illustrated holiday classic <laughs> by uh, Doogie Horner and J.J. Harrison is illustrated. Um, this is a, a Christmas storybook that uh, for adults based on the uh, Die Hard movies. I know many people who say it's their favorite Christmas movie. So no kidding. Oh, that's great. Well, this is this um, is for them, and already it's selling. So. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, next, we have uh, at number eleven, "Blessed in the Darkness: How All Things Are Working for Your Good" by Joel. Austin. This is, we say, best-selling author and preacher at Lakewood Church in Houston, Texas, which he got a lot of flack for not opening the, the church during uh, during the hurricane to let people in. We say he tackles the uh, age-old question of why bad things happen to good people. Uh, we say, given the intense pain and suffering that some experience in the world, such a stance makes Austin seem out of touch. Basically, he asked, uh, Austin asks whether those who are upset about their life situations are mature enough to accept God's answers. And we say, despite this, Austin's grasp of scripture is masterly, and many will take comfort in the stories of biblical figures who face horrific circumstances and emerged with a faith renewed. At number 12, we have a book, not a review, The Storm Before the Storm, The Beginning of the End of the Republic by Mike Duncan. Uh, he's got a podcast series called History of Rome and uh, Revolutions. And so this is exactly this, the beginning and the end of the Roman Republic. At number 23, uh, our last book, it's uh, called American Radical, Inside the World of an Undercover Muslim FBI Agent Starred Review by Tamer Elnery and uh, uh, Kevin Maher. Uh, we say here, a Muslim American working as an undercover agent in a, a counterterrorism unit in the FBI grapples with his faith 
while posing as a jihadi sympathizer in this multifaceted, action-packed account of real-life spycraft. Uh, there's never a dull moment here in this intimate story of an American Muslim going to great lengths to serve and protect his country. Wow, that sounds yeah, intense. It really does. It really does. So, and like I said, we gave it a start, um, and uh, looks like people are responding well to it. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, Joseph Jabelli tells us how science is slowly winning the fight against Alzheimer's disease. We'll be right back. Hi, I'm Ted Genoways, author of This Blessed Earth, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Today, we've got Joseph Jabelli on the line. His new book is In Pursuit of Memory, The Fight Against Alzheimer's. Hello, Joseph. So glad you could join us. Hi. Good to be with you. So you're a neuroscientist. You specialize in cell biology of Alzheimer's, uh, and you begin your book with, with a history of the disease and its treatment. So, so take us there. Sure. So my book really is about the past, present and future of Alzheimer's disease. Um, I wrote it very much for the general public. Um, I wanted to help people understand what Alzheimer's is, uh, how it affects people's lives uh, and what scientists are doing about it. And so I sort of start the book by discussing the history of Alzheimer's disease. And it's a very fascinating history because Alzheimer's disease actually comes from uh, a, a, a German physician called Dr. Alloy Alzheimer, who in 1906 um, discovered a very peculiar and unexplained mental disorder in a 56-year-old patient called August Dieter. And August had severe lapses in her memory. She was very confused, very agitated. And Alzheimer followed her very closely and studied her. And after she died, he looked in her brain and he found these peculiar lumps of sticky proteins that we now call plaques and tangles. And he, what he did is essentially uh, link the behavioral abnormalities um, and her symptoms to these plaques in the brain and these plaques and tangles that built up in her brain. And, but for a long time, he was sort of ignored by his peers. In 1906, it was very unusual to link behavioral abnormalities with biological quirks. So it took a long time for scientists to basically catch up to a point where we understand that Alzheimer's is a disease and that it's not a normal part of, of, of aging and uh, to sort of fully understand it and to help develop effective treatment for it. So 1906, so this has really only been studied for a little over a century. How has the understanding of the disease and its progression and its treatment possibilities changed during that time, especially with huge advances in diagnostic tools? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, what happened was it took a long time for scientists to start to wake up to this problem. Um, in the 1960s, there was a Hungarian uh, uh, psychiatrist called Martin Ross, and he was the first person really who to start developing cognitive tests for people, to start following patients throughout their life, um, measuring their cognition, trying to measure and get some kind of sense of their memory, and then to sort of look at post-mortem at their brain tissue to see again if there's any links. And so he was the first to really discover that aging alone wasn't enough to explain the sheer number of plaques and tangles that you see in an Alzheimer's patient. Um, and so, you know, once that happened, there was sort of a revolution in neuroscience. And in the 70s and 80s, um, a lot of really, really smart 
psychiatrists and neuroscientists and doctors and clinicians um, essentially sort of sat down together and said, you know, how do we crack this nut? How do we figure this out? And what they essentially did was create drugs that are still being used today that uh, target the symptoms of the disease, um, the sort of Aricept generation of drugs that many Alzheimer's patients are familiar with. Um, and they can slow, uh, they can delay the symptoms of the disease by six months to a year. But, you know, that's really all they do. I mean, they're, they're sort of, they're approved because there's nothing else. Um, and, you know, they're better than nothing. But since then, we haven't really had a big enough breakthrough to develop a drug to really push the disease back. Um, but having said that, you know, in the past 20 years, there have been some incredible advances in genetics and our understanding of the brain, our understanding of the biology of Alzheimer's disease. And now we're finally at a point where we're actually targeting the underlying biology of the disease instead of just trying to treat the symptoms. So I, I want to talk more about this, but I'm just a little bit curious. Pre-1906 and Alzheimer's dissecting of the brain, when someone was suffering from memory loss, you know, an older person uh, or, or dementia, what 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 did they call it? What and what was it? What? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I mean, so the word the term dementia itself is, has has been around for a long time, and for centuries before Alzheimer um, sort of de- first described. Uh, the disease itself. People were well aware of, of dementia. There are even accounts of dementia by, you know, by the ancient Greeks and the Romans. Um, Cicero talks about how maybe exercise can can prevent the symptoms of old age, uh, and because that's essentially what it was thought to be. It was thought to be just an, a part of normal aging. That that you know, if people were lucky enough to live that long, um, eventually their higher faculties would just start to degenerate. Um, and so uh, that it was sort of it was known, but it was was largely ignored because of that. Um, but we now know that actually it's not a part of of normal aging, and because a lot of the science now has shown that healthy brains they shrink and lighten by about sort of ten percent between the ages of fifty and eighty, mm. and most of that shrinkage happens because you don't lose brain cells. It used to be thought that you lost loads of brain cells as you get older, but actually you don't. You keep most of the brain cells you have. You just lose the, the connections between the brain cells, and the brain cells themselves can shrink and become a bit shriveled, but they're still there and they're still functioning. And so as we get older and we have common everyday forgetting, um, that's just because the, the brain is just functioning a little, little bit more slowly. Um, but as I say in the book, you know, it's, there's a, there's a huge difference between that and Alzheimer's. Alzheimer's is a catastrophic uh, sort of uh, death of brain cells. It's a loss of brain cells on a, on, a, on a huge scale. And what then happens is there's a lot of confusion that sinks in. So someone who's experiencing old age forgetfulness will, you know, forget where their keys are. They'll forget where their glasses are. But when they find them, they'll understand what they are. An Alzheimer's patient will find them and then think, you know, what are these for? There'll be that confusion that sets in. And so it took a long time for people to really understand, to sort of separate the, this idea of, 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 of dementia, of, which literally just means um, out of mind, essentially, or brain failure, uh, to, to, sort of, to sort of, you know, make, make that sort of very generic, very unsophisticated term actually more sophisticated and more specific. You know, what are we actually talking about? You know, we, we say dementia, and I say in the book, 
saying someone has dementia is like saying they have cancer without identifying which type of cancer they have. And so we now know since Alzheimer's that there are many different types of dementia, just like there are many different types of cancer. And Alzheimer's is just the most common cause of the dementia. So by 2050, Alzheimer's is likely to be the second leading cause of death. How do people die from this condition? Yeah, so that's a really great question. So people actually die uh, from the complications of Alzheimer's disease. What happens is often a patient will deteriorate to the point where they then develop an infection and lots of them die from pneumonia or they'll get a bed, a bed sore lead to sepsis. And often they can also have a terrible fall or they become very malnourished. It's essentially the body starts to sort of, I say in the book, it sort of forgets to look after itself. And I mean, now we're in a very good position because social care and, and just how society uh, treats Alzheimer's patients is, is so much better than it used to be. So people, people can live much longer with the condition than they, than they once did. But eventually, you know, it can get to the point where the, the brain deteriorates to the point where the autonomic nervous system, the part of the brain that controls breathing and heart rate and things like that, that starts to shut down. Um, and so Alzheimer's, you know, it, it kills indirectly. And tell us about the process that a patient might experience as they're going through this, developing this condition, or what the people close to them might observe. Sure. Yeah. So it's, I mean, it's it's different for different people, but the, I mean, the experience I had with my grandfather and the experience uh, lots of patients I met and interviewed for the book um, described to me was that it starts out with, often it starts out with a loss of navigation. People get lost. That was certainly true for my grandfather. He was he was leaving the dinner table and, and wandering off in the neighborhood and then just getting lost. He just his, his ability to orientate him to himself in space had, had basically been wiped, wiped away. And so, and lots of the patients I interviewed said that that's one of the first things they noticed. You know, they just, you know, they weren't quite sure where they were. They didn't know how to get home. They didn't, they didn't know where the bathroom was. And so it can often start in that way. And then you start to lose your short term memory. That seems to be the thing that goes first. Um, we still don't fully understand why that is, but a lot of evidence suggests that long-term memories are stored in different parts of the brain than short-term memories are, and that the, the areas of the brain that have long-term memories are spared until quite late in the disease, which is why many patients you know, will, 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 will remember their sort of childhood memories, or they'll remember things from the very distant past, but it's just the recent past that they, they'll have trouble with. And so with my grandfather, it was the same thing. Um, you know, he started to not be able to recognize me and my sister. And then eventually he couldn't recognize my father and, and, and his other children. Um, but he still remembers you know, his first wife. Uh, he still remembered an old song if you played it to him or a very old photograph would, you could show him an old photograph or, or, or make, make him listen to an old song. And, and suddenly you would see some signs of coherence and, and recognition. Um, and so, uh, Essentially, the, the, the disease is progressive, so it deteriorates, it gets worse. Um, and once the memory problems set in, um, eventually a patient will then get to the point where they can't really look after themselves. Um, you know, they'll need, they'll need help getting dressed and looking after themselves, and they'll require around-the-clock care, essentially.
observing your grandfather, and you're a neuroscientist, did you were, were you of the age, or were you already a uh, a neuroscientist when he first developed these symptoms? And if so, were you among the first to notice them? Um, no, so I wasn't actually. I was. Um, I mean, I was a teenager when my grandfather started first developing symptoms. Um, and so this was, I mean, I, I had an interest in the brain at the time, which, which um, uh, made me want to go and study neuroscience. Um, but I, I didn't really have any understanding as to what Alzheimer's was or, or how it could affect people. Um, and so I was sort of, I remember asking my parents, you know, why is, what's happening to granddad? Why, why, is, why can't he re- recognize us anymore? Why is he behaving so differently now? Because he used to be a very energetic, very sort of extroverted uh, charismatic man, and he suddenly he became very introverted, very quiet, and he and he just he simply didn't recognise us. And um, but my parents at the time they just put it down to old age because this was back in the nineties, and I think in the nineties people they weren't as switched on to Alzheimer's as people are today. Um, you know, people still thought that it was just down to old age, which is what my parents thought. Um, and so, I mean, as I say in the book, it was. That that explanation never really felt right to me because I was always just looking at my friends' grandparents and seeing very old people on the telly and thinking, well, why isn't this why isn't this happening to everyone if this if this is just a part of of old age? Um, so I knew, I think, in my teen years that 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 wasn't quite right. That wasn't a satisfying explanation explanation for the symptoms um, that I was seeing in my grandfather. Um, but my understanding of Alzheimer's was I was I mean I didn't I didn't know anything about Alzheimer's at the time. We're going to take a quick break. Don't go away. Book lovers everywhere love Publishers Weekly Radio, now on iHeartRadio.com. PW Radio brings you the best of books and book publishing news. PW editors Rose Fox and Mark Rotella offer lively interviews with your favorite authors and conversations with new authors you'll want to get to know. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella. Join the community of book lovers at PW Radio. Every Friday and now on demand at iHeartRadio.com. Welcome back. We're talking with Joseph Jabelli, author of In Pursuit of Memory, who's telling us about Alzheimer's and uh, his personal experiences with it. Uh, how much of that information did you incorporate into your book? How did you decide on the balance of the personal and the medical? Mm, sure. So uh, that was quite difficult. I. I mean, I originally set out to write uh, a popular science book for the general public about Alzheimer's and, and what it is, how it affects people's lives. But I, I initially, I didn't put too much of my own personal story into it. But then as I, as I went out and interviewed all these different patients, um, I realized that, you know, a lot of their stories, a lot of their experiences of the disease resonated with my own. And so gradually... I started to put more of my own experiences with my grandfather in the book and it's sort of it's split into different sections and at the beginning of each sec- of each section I I talk a little bit more about my grandfather and the the kinds of things we we were seeing in him as he went through Alzheimer's disease um but it, you know in that respect it was it was a very sort of cathartic experience for me writing the book because I could I felt like I had an outlet to talk about my granddad and, and what he went through because I was meeting so many other people that had gone through the same thing, essentially. What made you decide to take that approach with the book to interview these people who had been personally affected? 
Um, I think it was mainly a, a sort of strong desire to um, just to sort of see the human side of Alzheimer's disease. Um, you know, I spend most of my time in a laboratory pottering around with cells and bits of DNA and trying to understand the very nitty-gritty molecular biology of Alzheimer's disease. And other than my grandfather, I, you know, I'd met a few other people uh, who were living with with dementia, different forms of dementia. Um, but I think I just I just wanted to understand how the disease actually affects people's people's lives and what stories they had. Um, and so I that very much sort of was was the main driving force to for me to go out and to meet these different patients. And I also was very keen to meet a lot of the patients with early onset Alzheimer's disease mm. because you know people associate Alzheimer's as a disease just that affects old people but lots of people get Alzheimer's in their 50s 40s and even 30s and it's these patients who are actually helping uh sort of catapult the the research forward because they're helping scientists understand what causes the more common late onset Alzheimer's disease um and so I sort of it was uh it was born out of a desire to sort of share my experience and see what other people's experience of the disease was, um, but also to to sort of just just to further understand the disease itself. So if you could tell us a, a little bit about some of the people you interviewed, say those with, with early onset Alzheimer's. Can you give us a, a couple of stories or anecdotes? Yeah, sure. So well, one of the first patients I met was Carol Jenny, who was a, she, she was a school teacher in Nottingham. And um, in uh, back in the 1980s, she wrote a letter to a group of neurologists um, in London based based at St. Mary's um, because she had noticed that there was lots of cases of Alzheimer's disease in her family. She had three aunts with it, two uncles, her father had it. Wow. And she just thought this was really strange. You know, so many people were getting it in her family. And so she wrote this letter to these neurologists saying, you know, you should, you should study us. Like, I think we could help you. And the neurologists uh, went to her house. They took blood samples from, from her and lots of her extended family. She kind of gathered all of the family together in her house. And this, this led to the very first, the very first gene that we know causes Alzheimer's disease. Um, it's a gene that's, it's very rare. Um, it's in, you know, less than 1% of all Alzheimer's cases. But it's a gene that gives you a 50% chance of developing the disease. And Carol's family um, well, had, the, had this genetic mutation. And so, you know, she was then living with the, with the, with the possibility of having Alzheimer's disease, having a 50% chance of developing early onset Alzheimer's disease. And there's a test as well. So the neurologist said, you know, we can, you know, we can give you the test. You can, you can know now if you're going to get Alzheimer's later on. Um, but Carol never wanted the test. She never wanted to, to know, but I mean, it's just some people, some people do and some people don't. But she, um, she eventually, sadly, went on to develop Alzheimer's disease. Um, but before she did, um, as I say in the book, you know, she was a real champion of Alzheimer's awareness. She travelled around the world, speaking about Alzheimer's, lobbying governments, putting pressure on people to to wake up to this now global pandemic. Um, so she was an extraordinary brave and courageous woman. Um, and even now today, her husband and her children are still working to raise awareness about Alzheimer's disease, to 
to keep talking about it. And, um, you know, she was, she was one of the first, I mean, she was essentially, uh, the, the first, uh, person to really help, uh, neuroscientists understand Alzheimer's as well, because by discovering this, this genetic mutation, uh, we had the very first clue as to what causes, what might cause the more common late onset Alzheimer's disease. Because if scientists have a, a gene, as I say in the book, as their starting point, they can then start to map out all the different possibilities, all the different pathways of the brain that might lead to dementia. Um, so she really helped push, push the research forward um, by being so brave and writing that letter and getting involved with the researchers in the way that she did. What an amazing story. Did you get to meet with her husband and children? Did you did you talk with them directly? I did, yeah. I did, yeah. Um I met her husband and I met her son John as well in Edinburgh and he's uh you know um, I mean he's very young. He's uh, he's um he's he's my age, you know, you think he's even a few years younger than me. Uh and he um again he has the option to to have the test to find out if he's mm. he carries the gene. Um, but he was sort of, uh, the same thinking as, as his mother, you know, he just, he, he said to me, you know, my mum always used to say that you could get hit by a bus tomorrow. So what's the point in knowing? Um, and so, but he's now, he's now carrying on the, what Carol did. He's, he's raising awareness. He's speaking to all these different Alzheimer's patients to remind them that they're not alone and that the research is going on. And, and I mean, yeah, it was, it was a, it was a privilege to, to meet these people. So for these two, uh, the mother and the son, had they taken the test and had they found out that they will develop Alzheimer's, would there have been or is there anything they can do now to either prevent it or stop the progression of it? Um, so, I mean, with those cases, because that's a very special case of early onset Alzheimer's caused by a genetic mutation that gives uh, you know, 50% chance, but, but if you have, if you do, if you have that gene, you'll definitely get Alzheimer's. There's, a, there's, there's probably not much that they could do because it's such a unique genetic mm. case. Um, but we do know that in the majority of, of, of cases of Alzheimer's, um, even though there still seems to be some sort of genetic link. So we know, for instance, that there's a gene called APOE4, which we know is the strongest genetic risk factor for Alzheimer's. Now, if you have the APOE4 gene, it doesn't mean that you're going to definitely get Alzheimer's disease. It just means that you have a slightly higher chance of getting the disease. Um, but we do know that there are things you can do in your day-to-day -day life that can reduce the risk of developing Alzheimer's disease. Um, so a lot of research, for instance, is going into things like diet and exercise, we know that anything that's good for the heart is good for the brain. Mm. Uh, I mean, there have been lots of studies now, post-mortem studies, that have shown that in about 80% of Alzheimer's patients, there was also some form of cardiovascular disease. There was also some form of heart disease. Huh. Um, so anything that's good for your heart will be good for your brain. Um, we also know that with exercise, you, you release uh, this molecule called BDNF, um, which just stands for brain-derived neurotrophic factor. And it's a, it's a protein in your brain that, that can stimulate the production of new nerve cells and new contacts between nerve cells. Um, and with diets, you know, the, the studies on diet are getting more sophisticated as well. A lot of research is going into turmeric now because we've, mm. we know that within turmeric, there's a compound called curcumin, 
which destroys plaques. It dismantles them. You can see this happening under the microscope. So studies into diet and exercise are definitely getting more sophisticated. Um, but things like lowering stress as well, we know that that reduces the risk of developing Alzheimer's. It also um, helps patients decline at a slower rate if you lower their stress. Uh, we know that sleep is crucial for uh, lowering, lowering your risk of Alzheimer's. Uh, there's some really interesting research coming out now that suggests that while you sleep, the brain essentially cleans itself and essentially cleans away the toxic uh, the toxic proteins, toxic plaques and tangles that we think cause Alzheimer's disease. And so uh, we also know that remaining mentally engaged uh, has a huge effect on, on your chances of developing Alzheimer's. And this can be anything from reading a new book to learning a new language, uh, remaining socially engaged, seeing friends and family on a regular basis. Anything that keeps the brain active, uh, we know, can reduce your chances of developing Alzheimer's disease, but also help with the symptoms of someone who's in the, the mild to moderate phases of Alzheimer's disease. So when my mother plays three games of chess a night, that's therapeutic? Yes, absolutely. Yes. I mean, it's it's one of those things where, you know, like years ago, uh, people would would say, you know, you know, I'm doing crosswords and, and as you say, I'm playing chess and I'm doing all these different things. And is it really helping? And we could say probably, but we didn't really have robust enough science to back that up. But now the studies are getting much more sophisticated. Scientists are looking at huge groups of people over very over long periods of time, and even though you know the, the link isn't definitive, the jury is still out in in many ways. Uh, the, what I say in the book is that the evidence is growing; it's not fading. The more studies we do in this, the more clear the connection seems to be. What about medical treatments, drugs, and you even uh, discussed the idea of transfusing plasma? Yeah, so that was. Um, that was a really interesting and, and enjoyable chapter to write because there's uh, there's some amazing research going on at the moment uh, in California um, by a man, a man called Caroline Nikolic who uh, is interested in um, young blood plasma because uh, we know that there are factors in blood, in young blood, that seem to help the brain restore itself, regenerate itself. And we know also that in, uh, as you get older, that these protective factors in your blood, not only do they start to disappear a bit, but there are other factors that are toxic to the brain and that can actually um, cause memory problems, and they start to build up. And so uh, these researchers, uh, it's really amazing what they're doing, that they're essentially trying to tease out the individual proteins from the blood plasma, of, uh, from, the, from young blood plasma, to and, and and use that as a therapy, um, and it was all started actually by uh, by just an observation in a patient of a, a Chinese billionaire um, whose son I went to meet in in Hong Kong, um, who received a, a transfusion of of young blood plasma for a routine operation, and he had Alzheimer's at the time, and and his children noticed that after he had that transfusion, he was he was they they say he was much more articulate, he recognised us again, but it didn't last very long. They said. Um, and so, you know, they contacted uh, Carolee and other scientists in California and, and people at Stanford and Harvard and said, you know, you should look into this. And that started a whole new field within Alzheimer's research. 
Um, and so the goal is now that there's a company in California called Alcahest that are sort of looking at looking at, looking into this quite closely. Um, you know, the idea is to sort of figure out what the proteins are in, in blood that can protect the brain and somehow make a drug drug out of that essentially. So it sounds like you have a hopeful outlook in your book. What's ahead for Alzheimer's research in addition to this transfusion of plasma? Sure. So um, I do. Have, yeah, I do have a very hopeful, uh, optimistic outlook. Um, I think. Uh, I mean, genetics is going to be the thing that really revolutionises Alzheimer's research. We're we're understanding the genetic landscape of Alzheimer's. And we're, we're detecting all of these different risk factors. We've identified over 20 so far of genes that just, again, slightly tip the scales in favor of Alzheimer's. And scientists are using those, those genes to help understand the biology of the disease. And really the future is in essentially stopping it before it starts. Or, well, or rather, I should, I should, I should, I should say there, there are two fronts really at the moment. The first is to stop it before it starts. And so, what we're trying to do now is to spot these very early signs of Alzheimer's. And we can do that from looking at patients' blood or spinal fluid or maybe even the eye. Spotting those early signs years before someone develops symptoms and then developing a drug to essentially push symptoms back. Because as I say in the book, you know, if, if, if we could push Alzheimer's back by even one year, there would be 9 million fewer people with the disease by 2050. If we could push it back by five years, it would effectively half the globe's 46 million Alzheimer's sufferers. So really, the idea of a cure is in many ways just to push the symptoms back. Um, and so that's, that's the main sort of focus at the moment, and that's the one that scientists are most optimistic about and that, and that could be a reality in the next 10 to 20 years. And the other, the other side of things is, is um, using adult stem cells to help understand the disease, but also to maybe... Uh, help people who are very symptomatic, you know, to actually reverse the symptoms of someone heavily entrenched in the disease. I have a chapter about uh, the latest stem cells, which are taken from a patient's skin. Um, what scientists are doing is essentially just taking bits, uh, uh, they can take a piece of a patient's skin and they can reprogram those cells uh, into stem cells and then make those stem cells brain cells. And so uh, there's some amazing research going on where people are sort of trying to build little pieces of brains in petri dishes with the eventual hope of transplanting that into regions of the brain. But that's that's definitely further away in terms of uh, uh, in terms of a therapy for Alzheimer's. At the moment, the idea is, is to spot it before it starts, develop a, a drug that can clear away the plaques and tangles that we think cause the disease, and uh, you know, and, and prevent prevent a patient ever experiencing the symptoms. And I think it's the way that science is going at the moment. That's a very real possibility. We've learned so much about this disease in the past 20 years. Um, and the rate of scientific discoveries now is, is exponential. And so I am very optimistic that, that, that we will have a very effective treatment for this devastating disease soon. Well, uh, hopeful indeed it is. We've been talking with Joseph Jabelli. You can find his book, In Pursuit of Memory, in stores right now. Joseph, thank you so much for talking with us. Oh, thank you for having me. Thank you. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, PW Editorial Director Jim Milliot talks about PW's annual salary survey, so stay tuned. I'm John McGregor, author of Reservoir 13, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio.
I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Every week we get insider info from Publishers Weekly editors and contributors. Today, PW Editorial Director Jim Milliot is here to tell us all about PW's annual salary survey. Hi, Jim. Hey, Rose. How are you? I'm doing well. I'm excited that this is uh, the salary survey time come around again. <laughs> um, it's something we look forward to every year because it's a, a very interesting snapshot of what's been happening in the publishing industry. Tell us what the news is. Yeah, I think you're right, Rose, in saying it's a snapshot. Um, this year we got over 520 responses, so pretty good, a little more than uh, the prior year. And in some ways it showed more of the same with some, you know, slight twists. Uh, the big finding um, was that, you know, women have always been uh, the predominant uh, sex, if you will, in the um, industry. And this year, uh, women accounted for 80% of uh, all jobs. Wow. Wow. People who responded. And that was up from 74% in wow. uh, 2015. And as we point out in the article, it, it's something that really hasn't been a surprise because a few years ago, uh, we started noticing that most of the people entering publishing at the, you know, the entry level uh uh, rank were were women, and that held true again in um, 2016, where 85 percent of people with three years or less experience were women. Mm. So if if that keeps up, um, we're going to see some more shifts. You know, maybe not next year, but certainly in the years ahead. How is that reflected in the in the uh, upper echelon, the the management, uh, men versus women? Well, um, that's interesting, Mark, because it actually had sort of a reverse effect this year around, uh, you know, management is typically where you find the highest concentration of men. Right. And uh, that was true again in, in 2016, and it was the only one of the major groupings that had more men in it than women. Mm-hmm. It, it was a very slight uh, majority. Men were 51% in uh Women were 49. Uh, in, in 2015, I think it was 54% women. So how to account for, you know, sort of that dichotomy that more women are in and why is there more men in management? It, it, some of it's a historical thing. Some of it may be, you have to acknowledge, we did 520 or so responses, so it's not inclusive, yeah. but it's always been pretty directional. And every finding we've ever had has never wavered dramatically so well and also as you said it seems as if we've had you know it, according to this more younger women coming in you know 85 percent of what, what you had said right of, or, so I, I think in time you know we'll see if they start moving to the upper management right right you would hope so but in some ways and the, and the, and the trend could certainly change but, you know, we always talk about the salary gap, right? The and salary gap and also that women don't stay in publishing as long. Well, well, yes, Rose, you are reading my mind. I'm leaping ahead. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, the median salary for men last year was 93000 mm-hmm. And for women, it was 65000 mm. But that was actually better <laughs> than it was uh, the prior years. Um when the gap was even bigger. So in, there was some improvement. I mean, it doesn't sound like much when you see see the discrepancy there. Um, but, you know, there was movement. Um, when you say median, that's throughout all of publishing from, right, the, right. from entry level all the way up to management. 
Right. Um, yeah, just to give you those comparable numbers. Um, so we said men was 93,000 and women 65. In 2015, it was 96,000 for men and 61,000 uh, for women. So that's an improvement of roughly $10,000. Uh, but there's still a long way to go, yes. as those numbers show. And, um, Rose, what you were alluding to before is one of the main reasons, so that in addition to men being in management, which is, again, the highest paying uh, sector, men just stay in, in um, the industry longer. Of those who've been in the industry um, for more than 20 years, 43% were men and only 20% were women. Between 11 and 20 years, uh, men have a higher ratio of 30 to 29%, which is pretty, pretty um, equal, obviously. But again, in uh, less experience, and this, I think we're really starting to show the um, growing imbalance between men and women. Of those in the industry between three and seven years, 24% were women and only 10% men. So, I mean, that could over time... Uh, you know, yeah, I think you almost would have to expect to see more women in, in higher higher ranking positions. I'm confused by those numbers because they don't add up to a hundred percent. No, well, that's they. If you add up the women, if you add up the the, if you add it up by years, oh, I it's see. It's not supposed okay. to. Uh, so it, it's not. I see. Well, it's not people of more than twenty percent. What's the ratio? It's that the people who the the people who are in that. I see. So 43% of men in publishing have been there more than 20 years. Right. Gotcha. Exactly. Exactly right. Yes. Gotcha. So, you know, it's, it's, uh, we've never really looked in detail at, um, why women leave. Um, but uh, we do always ask, um, what their biggest complaints are. <laughs> um, and, you know, shock, shockingly or not so shockingly, uh, Lack, uh, poor salary was number one, uh, a men, woman at about a 60% level. But, um, salary was only, I think, the third highest complaint among men. So obviously, uh, you know, they're a little bit more satisfied with, um, with their, with what they're getting paid. And you see other levels of frustration among women. Um, the second biggest, uh, complaint was lack of recognition for women. Um, complaints tied to why their salary is lower or, or, um, or up at the top. Because again, lack of advancement and lack of recognition mm-hmm. were much higher, were much higher for women than for men. And without those two things, I mean, it's hard to get promotions and it's hard to, you know, get your, get your compensation higher. Yeah. So the thing that we've been, one of the things we've been, uh, looking at over the last several years is diversity. How did we do this year? Not much change, Mark, as you uh, may have suspected. Um, you know, in the, in the big number, 87% of uh, people who responded to the survey were white, um, which was down 1% mm. um, from 88% um, in, in 2015. So while, um, you know, we've talked about it here and it's been talked about lots of other places, um, it doesn't look like they've made too many inroads in bringing in uh, non-white uh, folks. Where there was some improvement, um, at least in the view of the people who responded to the survey, was that they uh, seemed to agree 
that the industry has done a better job in publishing more more diverse books than they had in the last few years. 72% of respondents uh, said that they thought the industry was doing a better job, including 65% of respondents who were non-white. But the numbers in terms of how do you think publishing is doing and actually diversifying its workforce – even the people in the industry don't think they're doing a very good job. Right. Okay. So um, obviously uh, some ways to go. And we did add a, add a new question this year. You know, internships are, can be a hot topic now and then. Hmm. And the industry certainly uh, depends on the, and then to some degree. Right. Um, so we found that uh, 87% of publishers uh, – do in fact uh, hire interns, which I don't think was a great shock, and at least we have a number out there now. Um, but was of you know, of course, a little a bit more controversial. Um, interns weren't always paid. Um, I was going to ask, yeah. Uh, but what we did find was of the people who, of, the, of the companies that hire uh, interns, sixty-seven percent um, uh, had paid internships. So. I don't know what the other 33% get away with. Right. But, um, College credit or something? Yeah, uh, yeah. it could that's, be. That's exactly right, it. Right. Yep. And what we also found, you know, looking a little deeper in there, was that um, no matter the size of the company in terms of revenue, they all um, hired interns at about the same rate, at about, you know, somewhere in that 87% level. Mm. But where there was a real difference was in um, – who pays them? Mm. Um, only 35% of companies with less than a million dollars in revenue said they paid their internships. Um, and you could really see the bigger the company, the more likely you were uh, to get paid if you were an intern. So, for instance, uh, in companies between, uh, with sales between $100 million to $500 million, 81% of interns uh, were paid. Or I'm sorry, 81% of employees who worked at companies between 100 million and 500 million said so they paid their employee, uh, their, their interns. So you know, there it certainly does uh, pay to yep. uh, pay to work for uh, a bigger company if you want to be paid. And we did look at the, and the median salary is 11 dollars and 80 cents per hour. So you know. Uh, I think that's above New York minimum wage, yeah. <laughs> uh, at least at the present time. So, so you know, we always enjoy doing this. Uh, you know, you never know what you're going to find. Uh, last year, uh, the average pay raise was about 2.7%, about the same as it was the year before. And this is, you know, another slight glimpse of women showing some improvement. Women actually received slightly higher uh, pay raises um, in 2016 than men did. Right. So, you know, maybe it's a step in in the right direction. Well, that sounds all very useful. And, of course, the full write-up is going to be in Monday's issue. Yes, hopefully without any of my glitches. (laughs) With graphs and all. Lots of graphs. Graphs and charts. Everybody's favorite. (laughs) Great. All right. Well, thank you so much, Jim. It's always really good to uh, get this glimpse of how the industry is doing. I'm glad the news is broadly good, if not spectacular. There you go. I think that's a great way to sum it up. We'll we'll keep aiming for that incremental change. (laughs) All right. Thanks so much, Jim. And now a final word from our sponsors. Beyond the headlines, beyond the routine, beyond the book, I'm Chris Keneally, host of Copyright Clearance and his podcast series, Beyond the Book. And I'm Andrew Albany, senior writer at Publishers Weekly. 
Join us each Friday for a publishing news week in review podcast unlike any other. Learn all the breaking news and catch the best analysis on developments in the book trade, copyright law, and much more. You already know business as usual. Now go Beyond the Book. Listen to the free series and subscribe at beyondthebook.com. And that's it for today's show. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and you've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. Join us next week for an interview with Armistead Maupin, author of Logical Family. We'll also have lots more juicy insider info on best-selling books and the nuts and bolts of publishing. In the meantime, you can listen to this and every episode of Publishers Weekly Radio absolutely free at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio. Subscribe to our podcast on iHeartRadio and iTunes and hear every new episode stream live on audiobookradio.net. Check those sites every week for a brand new episode giving you the inside story on your favorite story. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio Show. 